You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a great friend and a global expert, Dr. Rod Rocconi. And uh, Dr. Rocconi, we absolutely, absolutely love your t-shirt, so thank you for wearing and uh, showing the Overcome spirit. So um, Dr. Rocconi is Professor of Gynecology Oncology at University of Alabama and Director of Research at Infirmary Cancer Care. He is regarded as one of the uh, top renowned experts in this space, and he also serves on several national committees, including the ASCO Gynecology Cancer Guideline Advisory Group, and has been involved in some groundbreaking work on ovarian cancer. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Rocconi about advances being made in the field of uh, immunotherapy and ovarian cancer, which still remains a challenging topic. And uh, grab your coffee. I have mine. This is uh, fall and what a lovely time to connect over coffee. And so with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Rocconi, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always an honor to have you. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, you're too kind with the uh, introduction, and uh, look really forward to uh, spending some time with you this morning. Thank you. And as I as I said before, I cannot get over the T-shirt, and chances are I won't until the end of the end of our conversation. So thank you once again. So. Dr. Arconi, let's start with the basics. So unlike many other forms of cancer treatment, we know that immunotherapy doesn't involve any direct interaction with the malignancy. So tell us more about just immunotherapy in general. Yeah. So, you know, I think a good preface of that is, you know, at its core, the major challenge in treating any cancer uh, is that, you know, cancer uses normal cell machinery to really do bad things. Uh, and so in theory, we, we always kind of have the ability to shut off a potential pathway or potential machinery uh, uh, and shut off those mechanisms in cancer. But the problem still lies in the fact that if you shut that off completely, you also shut off those pathways in normal cells, so normal cells to survive. And so that's the major challenge, I think, in any cancer therapy is you know, creating something that's very specific and selective to cancer, where it hits 100% of the cancer cells, but 0% of the normal cells. Uh, so taking that kind of premise and looking in, you know, uh, immuno-oncology, so using immune, um, you know, related therapies towards cancer, uh, the normal cells send out signals to the immune system that says, hey, I'm normal, do not attack me. Uh, unfortunately, cancer sends out also those signals sometimes amplified. So they're screaming with a megaphone saying, hey, I am normal, keep on moving by, don't attack me. And they, they quote, hide you know, from the immune system. And, and, and in immune cancer or cancer related, we call that immune escape. Um, and, and so much of our immune therapy to date in regards to how we treat you know, cancer uh, is really removing that you know, signal. Uh, so that the immune cells can recognize a cancer and then attack the cancer. And so we call that uh, a checkpoint inhibition. So immune checkpoint inhibition is a common term that, that you'll hear. Uh, and that's essentially what's it, what it's doing is removing that cancer 
uh, signals to uh, allow the immune system to recognize and then attack the cancer. Thank you. Um, so what are the different types of immunotherapies that may be offered to the patients today? Not just in ovarian, but any any kind of cancer. Yeah, so, so most of this is involving, you know, as I mentioned, the checkpoint inhibitors that block a cancer's ability to, you know, escape the immune system. Uh, but there's also other things that are, are commonly being used and, and looked at in clinical trials, such as uh, increases in cytokines that actually kind of help recruit immune, you know, cells to a specific area. Um, and then certain antibodies, and there's multiple ways to, you know, have an antibody created to a specific marker, you know, on a cancer cell. Uh, that allows the immune system to kind of piggyback in and, and help attack. So uh, some refer to that to kind of like a Trojan horse type of phenomenon um, that, that takes advantage of, you know, circumventing that signal to say mm -hmm. immune escape, being more specific, uh, and then also recruiting immune cells to the area. So uh, those are kind of the general principles when we look at immune therapy uh, today. Uh, oddly enough, it, you know, immunotherapy has been looked at in theory and principle for, geez, 100 years now. So it's uh, taken a little bit of time to get where we are now, but but it's an exciting time, I think, for having newer therapies for cancer patients. Wonderful. So um, just like there are, you know, different kinds of immunotherapies, right? I mean, there are also different types of ovarian cancers. Um, so tell us about which types respond better than the others to immunotherapy and why. So, you know, recently um, across multiple tumor types, uh, even outside of ovarian cancer, just cancer in general, we've seen that the higher the mutation rate within a cancer, uh, the more likely it is to respond to uh, immunotherapy. Uh, now, you know, most ovarian cancers are not necessarily mutationally driven, so they have low rates of mutations uh, by comparison, which unfortunately by itself leads to low response rates to that traditional kind of immune checkpoint, you know, immunotherapy. Uh, however, you know, these newer targeted therapies that uh, uh, take advantage of, you know, the antigens and uh, on a cancer cell um, have shown some successes in immunotherapy that the checkpoint inhibitors were less effective at. And so, uh, you know, with clinical trials and, and um, certain things we always talk about in cancer is that, you know, even though a percentage of response rate might be only 10%, but if you can really recognize which patients those 10% are, uh, and you get that kind of right drug to the right patient at the right time phenomenon. And I think we're with immunotherapy, we're getting closer and closer to that as, as the years go by. So I have a question about that 10%. So you said, let's say, let's say 10 to 15% respond well to immunotherapy. So is there like a pattern to the that 10%? Like, is there, you know, what I'm trying to understand is those 10% of patients, do they belong to one type of ovarian cancer versus the others? Or is it just spread across and it just depends on the person and her you know, reactions? Yeah, you, you know, I think some of our, our gaps in knowledge right now is that yeah. we not have a complete handle on what 10% that is. Right. You know, a combination of things that are happening either within a, a specific patient or that patient's specific cancer. 
Um, and, and so, you know, that, and then also I think combinational assays kind of help, you know, so we're, we're looking at, you know, the addition of a single agent immune therapy plus something else, whether it's a plus a PARP inhibitor plus standard chemo or even other, you know, immune therapy type agents, uh, that might help with the specificity, you know, bringing that immune system to that specific cancer cells. Uh, might help us in that regards. Uh, but, you know, I mentioned some of the gaps. Another gap there is if yeah. we just have a single best, you know, predictive marker, you know, biomarker that we can say, mm -hmm. oh, if we this test and get a positive, you know, marker A, then it's going to work. Uh, we're not there. It's probably a, a, a panel of different areas. And, um, but with, you know, the ability now with next-gen sequencing to we're able to look inside the cancer's DNA um, in a very quick turnaround time, you know, of a couple of weeks even, that, that we're, I think we're getting closer and closer to those types of specific answers to really identify why that that percent, you know, has the response that they have. Yeah, and that is why research is important, right? I mean, that is the reason why we do research to understand the complexities of this, 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 or any other disease for that matter. And it, it's continually evolved, right? So um, thank you for sharing that. So um, immunotherapy as just a single agent or um, as a combination treatment, right? That seems to be the question of the day, what works better? So what is the latest finding in this and where is science progressing in understanding the different dynamics of care? And what are some of the major conclusions that have been made um, as immunotherapy as a single agent or in combination? Yeah, so um, in regards to response rate, and survivals more is always more you know we, we definitely want to keep improving regardless of what uh, our current standard is uh, and that's why clinical trials are so important and, and so I think that what we're seeing is that with those combinations of you know um, of immune checkpoint inhibition if we're adding chemotherapy to it we do see an increase in response rates and you know PARP inhibitors we're seeing you know some increases there as well and other immune related therapies and, and, and I think that those are still clinical trials that are ongoing, and, and we, we have a, a lot to, to still learn about that. But uh, I always use the baseball analogy is that, you know, we might not be hitting a lot of home runs, but if we keep hitting singles and doubles, uh, we can win some ball games. And, uh, and, and I think keep moving that needle, you know, um, to get further and further and closer to the answer in regards to what patients benefit the most, you know, from a certain therapy. So the uh, when you were talking about the immunotherapy in combination and um, and and some of the the clinical trials that are ongoing, I was just thinking you mentioned PARP. So um, I was thinking that immunotherapy in itself is it's it's not very easy treatment, right? And if you combine that with PARP, that's to me, just sitting here, it seems like it's a lot of treatment going through your system. So from a toxicity standpoint, through the clinical trials, is there any data that has emerged which shows that it is kind of tolerable and safe for the, I mean, obviously it's safe, but is it tolerable for the patients or is toxicity a concern that our overcomers need to know or be aware of before signing up on these clinical trials? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that, that goes hand in hand with everything we do is that uh, first do no harm. And, and, and we want to make sure that uh, whatever we are doing, whether it's standard of care or clinical trials, uh, that, that it's first and foremost safe for that patient. Uh, and everything has a risk and a benefit to it. But but you're right. If we're adding two agents or we're getting double the complication rates, and um, yeah, that, that is definitely something that's always you know in our minds in regards to clinical trial work. Uh, you know, oddly enough, sometimes we see that by adding combinations that we get some synergy uh, to where things are not additive. So if you get, you know, 10% here and 10% there from two different agents and you put them together and you, you, common sense will say, oh, well then if it's a 10% response rate with one, 10% to the other, then it's a response rate of 20%. Right. Sometimes it's a synergy. It's even more than that. It can be 40%, 50%. And where the, the agents kind of play off of each other a little bit uh, and, or sometimes even add some specificity to it. Um, you know, one, one clinical trial that I worked on, for example, uh, where we use two different types of immune system uh, agents, uh, two types of immunotherapies. One was a traditional kind of a checkpoint inhibitor to reduce the, the signal. Uh, the second was uh, a vaccine-related chemotherapy. is very, you know, specific, you know, to a cancer cell. And what we saw with that is that we had increased, you know, uh, specificity to the cancer. In, which is the effect we want, but we saw actually a decrease in the side effects because we were not getting off-target effects to where, you know, a global kind of immune checkpoint inhibitor kind of revs up the immune system a little bit, um, and we saw actually less immune-related adverse events. Now, that was a, an early phase trial, and it, it, but it's one example of that with combinational therapy, yes, you do have to worry about additive side effects. Uh, but there are some specific instances where it might be more specific and actually synergistic and help uh, not only with the, the efficacy, but also reduce some of the side effects that are there. So um, I didn't know when we connect over coffee, we also connect over minds because you said vaccine. And that's exactly what I was thinking in my head when you were talking about this. I don't have this question here, but I'm just curious to understand the for the I've heard uh, here and there about the vaccine therapy for um, immunotherapy for ovarian cancer patients. Where are we with that? And what do you see in terms of vaccine therapy in the next five years? So, um, you know, I guess vaccine therapy is, or vaccines are kind of a broad topic in and of itself, but right. uh, in, in regards to, you know, um, the way I think of a vaccine therapy for cancer uh, is that you're really looking at a very specific marker uh, on a, a cancer cell. Uh, one, one example is um, of something that's been in clinical trials here recently, been published about is uh, mervituximab. Uh, for uh, ovarian cancer, looking at uh, folate receptor alpha, mm -hmm. uh, very specific marker. And the higher that expression is of that marker, uh, the better this agent works. And it really kind of, the, the antibody itself, that vaccine is drawn to the, uh, the folate receptor alpha. And like a Trojan horse, it brings some of that immune you know, um, effects with it. Uh, and so we get a very you know, specific um target into that, you know, cancer cell. And, and, you know, this goes hand in hand, I think with, you know, we talked about right patient, right drug, right time. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and something I talk with my ovarian cancer patients with, you know, frequently is that, you know, if we line up a, a hundred patients with ovarian cancer, you know, they all have the same, you know, cancer disease. But um, but if you look at the cell by cell or their cancer cells, there might be a hundred different, you know, pathways or a hundred different specific markers that they have uh, on their tumors. That really it's different in how their their tumor grows, metastasize, and in different ways that we need to inhibit that and, and kill right. those cells. Mm-hmm. So um, the more we know, the I think the, the more we realize we don't know, <laughs> and that's why. We- is so important uh, so that we really try to figure out at its core basis, you know, what is the root problem, you know, uh, patient by patient, because that's the most important thing is, is, the, is the patient sitting in front of us at that time. So what I understand, like for this vaccine therapy, it's not like the COVID vaccines that everyone can take it. Every ovarian per, uh, cancer patient, it is more uh, personalized. It, it's more specific to the disease state of the patient and what you think from an expert um, point of view that this person will benefit more from this therapy versus the other. So it's it's it, there's a little bit of discrimination that goes on here. Probably discrimination is not the right word, but selection um, that goes on in terms of this particular form of therapy. Is that the right understanding? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. All right, thank you. So, um, so we are hearing a lot about this uh, drug factory implant. So we are actually, um, you know, we have made some contacts with uh, Dr. Vesa at Rice University because we are in Houston and he's doing some phenomenal, exciting work and clinical trials are about to open on these uh, drug factory implants. So this sounds very exciting when it comes to immunotherapy for ovarian cancer patients because I have uh, visited his lab as well and have talked to him a few times. And it seems like in mice, at least, the response rate is spectacular to the point where they have seen complete elimination of ovarian cancer. So we have reasons to hope, even though we know that when it transfers into a clinic, a human clinical trial, it's not the same. But um, from your standpoint as as an expert in this space for several years and decades, tell us more about what you think uh, about the merits of the study and how you see this unfolding for ovarian cancer patients. Yeah, no, it is uh, without question very exciting uh, and uh, evolving field, and and um, the the methodology of this delivery system is is unique, and uh, you know something I akin to we've been doing for a while anyway with this kind of drug factory implants is you know what usually it's with hormonal therapy with people with imbalances in their hormones. There's pellet therapy where people would inject it to the skin to kind of help you know with certain hormones, and uh, you know this is just with this kind of implants per se, uh, it's really trying to overcome some of the obstacles of treatment in specificity, right? And so, um, and so you can package, you know, the immunotherapy or the cytokines, you know, within this little implant and, and put it either directly into the tumor or, you know, per the, the, the um, at least what I remember from that the study, the uh, published report, it was adjacent to or next to the tumor implants in, in the mice itself. Right. Right. And so really, uh, by doing that, you're bringing, you know, the cytokines in the immune system right to the area of need, you know, at the cancer. 
Um, and, and I think it's very exciting to look at and to think about, um, you know, that that prospect of having an implant to help treat, you know, a cancer. Uh, now, granted, as you mentioned, you know, there, there's some, there's we have to look at this in, 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 in clinical trials, have to look at the side effects of doing this. I mean, it is right. more invasive, um, uh, but but can be easily done. Um, and help determine, you know, the safety, the feasibility, and uh, and how effective it is compared to other, you know, other methods as well. So, in my opinion, it, it's exciting and definitely something to keep an eye on. And um, but moving moving the needle towards getting more specific treatments, you know, to the area of need. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, this is as you said, the drug factory implants. This this particular idea is not very new. It has been here for a while, but I just feel that, you know, just trying to do this for ovarian cancer patients is a novel space. And we are just excited about this and hopefully it will translate into something, you know, positive for these patients. Um, I just heard that they are opening, it's already the, um, the tr clinical trials, it's open it's already up on the website and so they're yeah they're enrolling starting this month or something like that so um one of the thing i think i really like about the thought process and the idea here is that you know ovarian cancer for the most part is is a disease that's confined to the abdominal cavity right so having a localized quote localized cancer um treated with a localized therapy with implants in the abdomen um, in that what we call peritoneal cavity, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's part of the thought behind intraperitoneal chemotherapy and why that got started and, and you know, continue to be evaluated. So in my mind, this is a natural progression of the art of, of, of you know, clinical trials and science to, to hopefully get better results. Right. And it's a, it's it seems to be a, you know, perfect uh, union between engineering and, and medicine, right? So which is also exciting because, they are coming at it from a very different perspective, from a bioengineering perspective uh, versus medicine. So I feel, I hope, I mean, I'm, you know, very hopeful that this will this will work out in the right direction because so many, so many patients could benefit from it if it does. So fingers crossed on that. So uh, speaking of that, I mean, this brings to me it brings me to the next question. Um, what are tell us some of uh, tell us about some of the uh, recent trials that you're running at your lab and the goals you hope to accomplish from these trials and what is your vision and what are you most excited about when it comes to immunotherapy for ovarian cancer? Yeah, you know, one of the I guess my main focus right now is on uh, Vigil, which is a immunotherapy uh, that I've partnered with Gradalis, uh, a company that created this Vigil immunotherapy, and uh, and we've had some you know really good results in ovarian cancer and you know phase one and two trials, and uh, hopefully you know starting the phase three trial you know sometime soon. Um, but but just to kind of talk a little bit about the vaccine, because I, I do think uh, this vigil immunotherapy, because it does incorporate a lot of the themes we've already talked about this morning, you know, over coffee, but uh, in, in broad scope, I, I kind of consider it a three-legged stool. And if you don't have all three of the legs, then the stool falls and you, you're not successful. Um, and so the first leg of that stool is that uh, this is uh, very specific to a patient's own tumor cells. So uh, we actually create this from uh, after we do surgery for a patient with ovarian cancer. We take a portion of the of the cancer, mm -hmm. uh, 
and and we look at those receptors, those antigens, you know, on a patient's cancer cells, which I kind of alluded to earlier. It's so different, you know, patient by patient. Uh, and then we we create, you know, a targeted, you know, antibody towards those specific antigens. Uh, so a vaccine or an immunotherapy created, a vigil created for Mrs. Jones is only good for Mrs. Jones's cancer. Right, right. Uh, Johnson over here needs a separate, you know, vaccine or immunotherapy created. So that, that's the first leg. It's very specific to the antigen. Second is that there, there's a booster in the immune system. Uh, so it's, it's genetically modified this uh, treatment to bring the immune system to that area. So that, that's, you know, uh, antibody attacks that, you know, in, uh, those receptors, it brings some immune cells to the area to get a more robust immune response. Um, and then the third thing, th there's a natural uh, enzyme, TGF-beta, uh, that usually the cancer uses TGF-beta to shut off the immune system. So if the immune system is attacking a cancer, that's its defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. So the third leg of this stool is actually, you know, shutting off TGF-beta so the cancer can't push away that immune system. Right. right. Uh, so I think it's pretty unique because it, it's, uh, it's very specific. Uh, it, 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 it boosts the immune system, sort of like a, a car analogy where you're putting the pedal to the metal so you get it going as fast as you can. And then, then the brakes, which is the TGFA, they were cutting the brakes line. So now, you know, this response can go as fast as it can without any brakes to, to slow that down. Uh, and, and the early results have been very promising. Uh, now, some of the things we're moving forward looking at, again, is trying to figure out which patients respond the best to this therapy. Right. So, uh, and looking at different biomarkers uh, that, you know, um, we can be very predictive and say, this is the right type of patient, you know, for this treatment. Um, but it, it, to date, it's been very exciting. And uh, we're looking at, you know, that and also the thought of potential combinational therapies, you know, with this, uh, uh, you know, with other therapies. And, and I kind of failed to mention, you know, that one of the best things about this is the side effect profile that the, yes. the Toxicity profile is very low. Uh, the fact there were no serious, you know, adverse side effects. Uh, it was only grade one or grade two, which are both mild. Um, site irritation, you know, comparing this with the placebo, and so uh, and the placebo and the medicine actually were quite equal. So, um, so patients were able to get this therapy without uh, much side effects, which is always a, a, a huge plus. So how many patients do you have currently enrolled in this? Yeah, so the, the study we just completed had 92 patients and it was a, a nice, uh, control trial, uh, but a phase two. So um, in, in about half of those patients, you know, 47 uh, actually received the vaccine uh, compared to placebo. And, and the way we're using this is patients who have frontline uh, new diagnosis of ovarian cancer, they get the standard surgery and chemo uh, that everybody gets. But then at the end of their chemotherapy, um, they are randomized, patients are randomized to get in the placebo versus the vaccine. Okay. And uh, so that, that's how uh, the phase two trial was run. So, so I'm curious. So after the vaccine that you therapy for the selected patients that out of this trial, then what is the next, are, are they being followed for X number of years or um, how is that yes. progressing? Yeah, and we're still following those patients. Um, the most recent publication we had uh, on that patient uh, data set 
um, was looking at survival rate or, or three-year overall survival endpoints. And so, uh, and, and the difference, you know, in the patients with the vaccine, you know, or the vigil compared right. right. to SIBO uh, was over 70% with the vigil and 40% with the placebo. Uh, wow. So, so a significant, you know, increase, not, not quite double, but, but. Uh, but that is know. significant. I mean, we will take 1%, 5% over what you are, you are talking 30% over. That's a lot. That, that, that is, that is a, uh, that's a nice sizable jump. I mean, we're, yes. we're all cautious because we don't want to overpromise anytime. Of course, but, yeah. But, but the data is the data and that's what we saw. And, uh, and, and I think it gives us enough information to move forward in further studies and a larger trial to make sure that, that, that type of efficacy holds up. And, uh, wonderful, so. wonderful. That's very hopeful news. Thank you for sharing that. And so they are not on any other kind of treatment at this point in time. Uh, no, no further treatment at this point in time. So that's a good point because with with that vigil, it's given once a month for up to twelve months. Okay. And, and so to right now, all the patients have received their entire, um, you know, vigil. Um, and, and the thought is, is that it kind of primes the immune system to recognize. So, for example, if cancer cells were to recur or develop, uh, that if it still has the same makeup, the same antigens, the immune system should recognize that. And so it kind of primes that immune system to recognize it and, and attack it again. So they are staying on this once a month, and that is the only form of treatment while they're being followed. Now, well, well, once that a month sounds fairly easy. Yes, it is fairly easy. And so just a shot in the arm, you know, once a month for the first 12 months after they finish chemo. Um, and so all the patients that completed that are now just on, on follow-up. Um, That's wonderful. I mean, fingers crossed that this also reads out very well so that, you know, more patients can benefit from this. Wonderful. So it seems like immunotherapy isn't that, you know, doom after all. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's ongoing that is promising. So we are finally getting to a point where immunotherapy could break the barriers in ovarian cancer. Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, we, we're seeing multiple examples of that. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I think with the, the vigil, you know, trial, uh, the vital trial using vigil, I think is one example. Uh, the, you know, drug factory implants is, is right. another things moving forward. Um Mervituximab that I mentioned earlier, looking at yeah. folate alpha is another, you know, of, of many examples of us getting more and more specific. Uh, so we get that precise, you know, cancer effect uh, while also trying to limit the side effects best we can. So uh, convenience is also a big thing too, right? I mean, if this is as simple as taking a pill or getting an injection or um, th then I think, you know, it, it's a little easier. Uh, than absolutely, absolutely. One curious question, Dr. Oconi, uh, for folks that have autoimmune conditions of any nature, right? I mean, anything, how do they respond to immunotherapy? Yeah, unfortunately, at this point in time, patients who have, you know, uh, uh, immune-related diseases are not candidates for uh, yeah. immune. And, and so, you know, if we're looking at, I guess, certain situations where patients are not eligible, that that is, that is one, you know, one criteria. Mm -hmm. One other things, you know, depending on the certain side effects, of certain immune therapies might affect the liver more so than other, or uh, the kidneys, or uh, or other infectious diseases that patients might have. Th those are all 
uh, part of the you know exclusion criteria of some of the studies that are there. And this is for all autoimmune, not specific. Any any autoimmune disease just kind of excludes you from participating. Right now, because the concern is, is how, you know, considering most of these therapies are kind of revving up or turning on the immune yeah. system. And so if someone already has the disease where their immune system is causing harm, right. we don't rev that up any for those patients. So that makes sense. Yes. Thank I'm you. To be more and more specific, you know, we might be able to tease that out a little bit, but right now, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. That makes sense. Safety first, right? That's what we need to do. So in which, and, and speaking of that, in which situations, we talked about the autoimmune conditions, but which other situations is immunotherapy not an option? And we talked about the toxicities a little bit. And how do you actually determine the best candidates for immunotherapy and for who you decide to discontinue? Let's say that person is on it, but you decide to discontinue. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, if a patient is on um, immunotherapy, whether it's, you know, standard treatment or, um, you know, or part of a clinical trial, it, a lot of the, you know, side effects we see from that are immune related. And so uh, patients can present with symptoms that look like a pneumonia um, yeah. or a colon infection, a colitis. And, uh, and, and now, now granted, patients can have a bacterial pneumonia while on therapy, but if they have pneumonia symptoms one and, and on immune therapy, that could be related. Um, and depending on the severity of that, how easily it was treated, and, and depending on the protocol, depends on if the patient can stay on the therapy once they recover, or do we have to discontinue? Um, and, you know, it's, I think in situations where it makes sense if a patient is having a, uh, not having a response to therapy and then start having side effects. That's an easy decision saying, hey, one, this isn't working well. Two, we're having some side effects to it. We have to move on. Uh, the times where it, it really becomes difficult is when you are having a response, but the toxicity yeah. is so high that it, it's really affecting uh, not only the, you know, the, the, the you know, effectiveness of the, of the agent, but also- The, the quality you know, of life is compromised, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's a patient to patient kind of discussion, <clears throat> depending on where, you know, they are in that journey. And, and um, it, it's truly kind of where I think that the, the art of medicine and the physician patient um, relationship really comes in, into play. And um, again, first do no harm. And, and, and always, always we're looking at, you know, the quality of life and we're greedy. We, we want both. We want the quantity and the quality. Same time. And, and to your point, I mean, it is, you know, ultimately, it's the decision of the patient what she he or she wants out of the treatment, because we have talked to patients who have given up on treatments who have, you know, just said no to any more treatment, because that's how they choose to walk their path. But there are other patients who will try every and any alternative that's there to kind of, you know, help them through the journey. So it just depends where the patient is too. I mean, to your point, where this it's a dialogue between the patient and the physician on the options that are available and what is the balance that they are seeking in the end. And and it's something and I think, yeah, you know, I'm not unique in this. I mean it's something we, I think we all do is that, you know, our, our we really just want, we want to respect our patient's wishes exactly. and give the patient the, the here's our choices. We've got A, B, and C. Here's what we can expect with A, B, and C. 
And, 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 you know, again, we're there to help respect the patient's decisions and, and they make their decision and, and we facilitate and do everything we can to ensure that we're following the path that they want for themselves. And including an example you, you brought up where there's some patients say, doc, I hear you, uh, but I, I don't want anything else, okay. you know, that's fine too. And um, it, it's part of, it's part of our job, you know, really to have those and thank you for for saying that it means it means a lot because not all physicians in all communities do the same you know we have been in many situations where the physician decides for himself or herself what is best for the patient and you know this story it's not new but just just spending that time understanding what the patient's perspective is is so important and thank you for honoring that i wanted to keep this on record that we appreciate you for doing that with your patient community so um so uh, we have talked about this in detail but we understand that immunotherapy is a complex field when it comes to ovarian cancer right and so we know that we are in the early stages but what hope in the horizon do you see uh, for ovarian cancer in the next five to 10 years and that you would like to share with our overcomers? Yeah, one of the most exciting things to me, I think is the pace of discussions. You know, you mentioned five to 10 years. That seems like a lifetime from a, a research cancer life cycle now. Um, you know, I think what used to take us 10 years to evaluate, we're, we're, we're doing in one, you know, two years. And, uh, and so I think, the emerging trends in immunotherapy or just cancer therapy in general that, that are very encouraging to me is that we're becoming more and more specific, more and more individualized to where we're not just treating, quote, ovarian cancer, cookie cutter, everybody gets this, you know, regimen. Uh, we're treating Mrs. Jones's cancer, you know, that has this specific marker with this specific, you know, change in the DNA of her cancer. Uh, and, and and by doing that, getting more precise with, with the effect we have on cancer cells, which if we're more precise on that, we're decreasing the side effects and it's becoming less toxic. And so th those go hand in hand. And I think those are it's very exciting to be in this kind of precision oncology world that we're in now. Um, and, and, and I mentioned a little bit earlier too about the convenience of it. I think, you know, the, the, if we have agents that are oral, you know, to where a patient just takes a pill every day instead of having to drive to a cancer center that might be, you know, might be around the corner or, you know, in my neck of the woods in Alabama. I mean, there's patients that travel 100, 200 miles to get to a cancer center uh, that has clinical trials. And that like is truly life-changing, Dr. Oconey. I mean, that is truly life-changing, making it convenient for the patients just a shot or oral pill or whatever that may be, especially to your point, some patients are traveling 200, 300 miles to come to the center. And, yeah. and we work with so many community patients nationwide that tell us that it's not always, it's expensive, right? I mean, not only the cancer treatment is expensive, but any everything else related to it, the parking, the drive, the, the time and the resources, all of that is you know, it's serious. So, I mean, everything we can, anything we can eliminate from this whole list is just absolutely fabulous. Well, and, and I think that it, along those lines, I mean, it, it is, we talk about toxicity from treatment, but, but, you know, the emotional toxicity and anguish 
of, you know, here, here we go again. I, I hate driving into the city. I hate going to this place. the financial toxicity of it, 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 it is costly. Everything you do you, from gas and gas prices being high to wear and tear on your vehicle. I mean, all those time off of work. Um, and, and, and I think we need to do a better job. And, and I think we are, and, and at least we're rec recognizing being cognizant of the fact that we need to do a better job of getting the care to the patients, as opposed to saying, Hey, we're the ivory tower. We got to have the patients come to us. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and these can more convenient methods of treating patients make that a, a reality. Um, and, and so it, that, that's exciting as well. I and mean, when we talk about, you know, the horizon next five to 10 years, I see all of that moving together with more precise therapies, less toxicity, ease for the patient and quality of life, not only from a cancer standpoint, but just overall, you know, treatment. And um, for many patients, you know, living, you know, uh, with the cancer, we want to eradicate it, but, but for those that we, we can't, we want to make sure that quality is there at the highest level. Absolutely. That's a brilliant answer, Dr. Rukoni, because we know that, you know, a cure is the end game, right? We are all, you know, striving towards it, but that may take a little bit longer than, you know, making cancer a chronic condition where you live with it for as long as you live with it. And then you can enjoy a full life. You can have, like you said, we can try to um, reduce the financial, the emotional, the, you know, social, all of those toxicities involved to make it easier and friendlier for, for the lack of a better word, the treatment a little more friendlier for the patient. So that is truly life-changing. So that is a lot of hope in one sentence. I just wanted to mention that to you. Yeah. Thank well, you, Dr. Rakoni. So I've asked you a lot of questions. What have I not asked you that you would like to share? Um, well, you know what? Well, first and foremost, I, mean, I, I greatly appreciate the, the, the work that, that you are doing and the whole overcome, you know, society. Uh, and, uh, it, it's it's so important to have allies and friends uh, and, you know, recognizing that, you know, each cancer patient's journey is their own. Um, and, and, and so I guess if there's one thing that, that I would say, I guess, to the overcome community, which is a little bit preaching to the choir, because the guys are always doing that, but uh, I encourage all, all my patients to, to get involved at the level which they want their involvement to be. And whether that's just joining a cancer support group, whether that's starting a cancer support group, there's one not in their area, uh, helping raise money for research, you know, advocating, uh, you know, uh, to to whatever level they want to, and we've got some really really powerful patients who are who are doing yeoman's work, uh, and, and I definitely appreciate that and uh, and the work that you guys are doing. Thank you, Dr. Coney. So before we sign off, in one sentence, I mean. I'm just being hard. You don't have to do one sentence, but uh, what is your well, message? It's hard to do a one sentence answer to anything. <laughs> what is your message to our overcomers uh, listening to you today, and not just in the U.S. but worldwide? Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share some coffee this morning. So, um, and, and but we we certainly could not do this in the ovarian cancer treatment world without advocates such as you guys and. Uh, it is exciting to see how fast, you know, the, the uh, science is moving, uh, but we are all on the same team trying to eradicate ovarian cancer. And uh, so all our patients can live, you know, longer, healthier lives. So uh, more cures to come. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Rakoni. This was a brilliant conversation. You have shared so much with us. Uh, thank you and grateful to you for your time. And overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know I learned a lot from Dr. Rakoni today, and it seemed like our minds also connected as we connected over coffee. I'm saying this again. So uh, please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these wonderful insights Dr. Rakoni shared with us. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.